tonight in our film reviews. Bill Nye stars in Living, a remake of Akira Kurosawa's Ikuru. Uh, Nye is playing a civil servant determined to make the most of the short time he has left to live. Set in Bucharest, Watcher stars Maika Monroe as a woman who begins to suspect she is being stalked by a serial killer. And the peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby, a documentary by Seamus Murphy about a bona fide Irish treasure with me in studio to discuss this week's releases, releases Tara Brady and Justin McGregor. And we'll begin with uh, Living, set in post-World War II London, revolves around a Mr Williams, played by Bill Nye, duty-bound civil servant who discovers he has six months to live. What will he do? Adapted, this is, by Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro from Akira Kurosawa's film Ikuro. Bill Nye, you, you know, it's so hard to pin Bill Nye down and the type of characters he plays, Tara. Yeah. So what's he playing here? Well, it's it's really interesting because he's he's talked about for quite a bit before he actually arrives on mm. screen, and uh, he's talked about by his colleagues or rather his underlings because it's 1953 and they're very much his underlings in the office, um, and and they're they're all on their lengthy commute that they take every day on the train in into the city of London, um, and and you're expecting this imposing stern figure, and when he arrives, that he is mm. both of those things certainly, um, he doesn't do anything to to frighten anyone in particular but you like you you feel that this is a very kind of daunting presence and and that he's been a daunting presence for many many decades in in the office of public works um wh- where he lives mm. uh well where he works rather but but certainly that's a huge part of his life yeah. Uh, yeah, and and we come to see that when we see kind of the relationship even with his son and and his, his daughter-in-law it's 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 really all about work he's a man who's who's defined by his Not work a lot of conversation and, at and, home. And, and 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 his habits so you you get this moment and it's the same moment moment that you get that's the pivotal moment in the Kurosawa film is what what do you do if you have six months to live and he he doesn't have a perfect answer to this um he really doesn't mm. because he's a very he's a very buttoned mm. up man he's he's not going to go out and tell everybody this is happening to me he takes it he takes this very strange trip to the seaside and he and he meets this rogue played by by Tom Burke and and and, and they have they have uh, yeah. the, you know they they get drunk they yeah. have a conversation um he he ends up singing um a, 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 an old scottish air on a piano um and and he he strikes yeah. up a friendship with with the kind of office girl, yeah. But they're all kind of it's he sort of finds his way into Finding himself. Finding his way through it, yeah. And and uh, Tara mentioning there, Justin, about the buttoned up nature of Bill Nye's character, certainly as we meet him at the beginning. But this is a very buttoned up society, in fact, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean. But- that, that sort of post-war Britain. I mean, this is before the swinging 60s and all that. And just in that post-war, they're out of rationing mm. and it's a really repressed society, especially social mores and the rules that are touched on. And very similar at that time to, to Japan in 1952, yeah. which is when Akira is made. So... Uh, it really works, I think, moving that, that Japanese sense Good of duty parallel. and culture over to Britain yeah. at that time just lands it in a perfect spot and a- time and place. And starting in the office on the morning of the, of the, the, the as the film begins is a young guy called Peter Wakeling played by Alex Sharp and <laughs> Here's the moment when he arrives at the train station and he sees all of his colleagues there and he thinks, this is great, let's go over and have a little chat of a morning and say hello to them. So he's full of the joys of spring. They are in a different mood. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Morning. So, uh, here I am, all ready for battle. I'd better introduce you. This is Mr. Peter Wakeling, our new colleague, Mr. Wakeling. Mr. Hart, 
How do you do? How do you do? I'm Mr. Rusbridger. How do you do? How do you do? You're eagerly awaited, Mr. Wakeling. We've been short now nearly two months. Oh, well, I, I hope to make a difference. It may take a week or two, though. Don't worry, old chap. This time of morning, it's a kind of rule. Not too much fun and laughter. Rather like church. So see, I see what you mean. <laughs> That's poor old Peter Wakeling, played by Alex Sharp, learning about the office politics. In fact, when I heard when that clip started, I thought, God, they're speaking quite a lot there. That's probably as much as they speak. And we see just after that, Justin, Bill Nye's character outside the train. Yes. And there's a, they, they're thinking the, the new hire thinks that they're going to have to make room for him. And it's like, oh, no, Mr. Williams doesn't sit with us. Like, it's yeah. very, very funny uh, how all that is introduced. And uh, yeah, that re- relationship of the new guy allowing us to sort of see that world. But there's very little dialogue in a lot of places. Like, yeah. that is one of the most effusive parts of, uh, uh, of, of the, the story. Of their, of their conversations. Um I, I was thinking before this, before we started this, and I thought, will I get through this without blubbering? This is an incredibly sad film, but handled so carefully and deftly, Tara. Yeah, it's it's all done in really, really small movements. And it, it comes, even the sort of things that he decides to do with his life, even the biggest things, they're very small things. They're, mm. they're, they're little things, but, you know, they're things that he, that are achievable for him. Um, and, but they're, they're just, they're just all kind of, it's, it's a film made up of small gestures and it's a film told, told and like just really, really delicate things. Even like every single conversation, like the awkwardness in that conversation, Conversation. You know, it's it's not it's not cringe awkward. It's mm. just it's just very very nicely written, and all all of the characters are really nicely written, and even the way that the society is structured, where you get the the kind of busybody neighbor, and and when they see when they see Mr. Williams having high tea with with um, Margaret, the girl from the, the office, office yeah. and she's completely horrified. Um, everything in it is not is 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 kind of small and and just really perfectly judged, and that's down to like the personnel, like not just the kind of the ensemble cast who are really good but um, uh, um, um, Oliver Hermanis the director is a great director the director Moffy which couldn't be more different from from this film and, and the script yeah. is, the script is so delicate everything's yeah. lovely and, and, and that's the, the Ishiguro adaptation that, that script that we're getting let's listen to just one more clip before I get your stars and it's Williams again uh, as Bill Nye and he's out with the office girl Margaret played here by Amy Lou Wood and you think you're wondering is it in any way indiscreet or is there something afoot here but there's nothing absolutely nothing going on it's totally innocent but this is the conversation that takes place he's just got the news that uh, he doesn't have long to live and she's one of the first people he speaks to oh, it's a silly nickname I don't think I'll tell you oh no no you've come this far you have to tell me alright remember your promise to not get angry Mr Zombie Mr what? Mr Zombie I saw a film about it with what's-her-name. Zombies are sort of like Egyptian mummies, but they can can walk and go about doing things. They're sort of dead, but not dead. Mr. Zombie, why? Why? I'm so sorry, Mr. Williams. That's really wicked of me. You mustn't be upset, Miss Harris. Mr. Zombie, it's rather good. It's quite appropriate, in fact. I like it. Mr. Zombie. An Egyptian mummy. Except I can move about. <laughs> there you go. Amy Lou, Amy Lou Wood and Bill Nye in the scene there from Living. You know, when, when you get remakes of classic films, there's often the question, did it need to be remade? This 
maybe answers that question in the way it remakes. Uh, how did it work for you overall, uh, Justin? And do you need to know the the Ishiguro? Are they the Kurosawa film before you, know, you see this? No, no, you don't. I mean, it, it's probably not the the advertising for the film is is a little bit off, maybe what the film is like. But I don't think you you do need to know mm. it. And it does. It translates really well. Often, uh, film shouldn't be remade, you know, in, into you know, certainly into Hollywood films. But mm. here, they've just done something really, really different. They've really understood the core of what that first film is about, and they've translated it just beautifully. And obviously, having such a great writer handling the material has helped. And, and the cast is so impeccable that Nobody I think I think it's going to send people back to watch Akira, which is kind of a lost. Kurosawa mm. film because it's between Rashomon and Seven Samurais which everyone a lot of people have seen different but, style but it's a completely different yeah. style of film and it's lovely so it's it's great that it's honouring it and it's great that they've done such a good job stars from you Justin oh easy five easy five and overall for you Tara oh easy five as well absolutely brilliant one of the best films of the year really good and not have we got through it without a little tear <laughs> dropping no plumbing. you won't get through the film without that happening would be my, um, my my prediction however well worth both fives I would agree totally with both of you let's move on to film number two an American couple uh, Francis and Julia Francis played by Carl Glusman and Julia played by Mika Monroe moved to Bucharest for Francis's new job with nothing to do in her day Julia wanders about the neighbourhood begins to obsess about a neighbour who stands at his window watching the world as she does uh, there's a touch of Hitch- Hitchcock about the setup mm-hmm. here uh, for sure Tara yeah definitely and I think it's a, it's a really really good setup um, for, for a thriller so um, she's a young actress so so we know she's probably got you know dramatic tendencies anyway and she's moved with her husband and she's in a strange city and she does, she's trying to learn the language so everything's very alien and then of course it's Romania and there's lots of little reminders that this is the country there's little trinkets and mm. you know things of Dracula that they they, they sell to tourists um, and and she 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 comes across this she comes, she feels like she's been followed and and it's that sort of thing it, it's a very very slow kind of process and she goes you know this weird thing happened this guy was at the movie theatre and then he was at the supermarket and she's trying to you know Mm. talk herself around and and, you know the husband laughs it off and he goes oh I'm, I'm a Big strong man, don't don't worry yeah. about it. But it, it's enough that she goes back and looks at the CCTV footage, and then that's even more ambiguous. But it's very very good on that idea that you know, you know, as as a woman, you know, one of the things about male privilege is not you know, it's not even about wages or anything or anything like that. It's it, a huge part of it is the fact that not being able to maybe sometimes go to the cinema on your own if somebody yeah. creepy sits down beside you, or you know, not being able to go out on and walk on a street and um on your on your own at night and. And and the, the the watcher thing slowly kind of creeps up in you, and it's a really really good slow build. And and that's the aspect of of I suppose there's a kind of machoism as well within even in the taxi we get this conversation between the taxi driver and the husband uh, where they're referring to how beautiful she is obviously, but it's in Romanian, and that's a very clever aspect of the film. Justin, I would argue that she is in the country. Loads of conversations take place around her. She can't understand it. The husband can. Yeah, well, it, brilliantly, none of it's subtitled, no. which is what, which mm. is just so great because it immediately puts you in yeah. her position. You're wondering all. You're, you know, when she goes, "What did they say?" You're thinking, "Yeah, what, <laughs> what did, did they, they say? say? What's going on?" And they're making, some, you know, at the end, there's, they have a bit of a fight because he actually makes a joke at her expense in mm. Romanian, and when they laugh, you know, she starts to cop on because she's picked up a few words. But it's just a really lovely sort of technique that she's not only isolated because he's working long hours, but she's linguistically isolated a lot of times. 
you know, in in, in this uh, in these uh, in in Bucharest, and then her apartment too. It's one of these amazing pre-war gorgeous apartment. <laughs> it's stunning. It's a stunning apartment. But when you see her through the window, it always makes her look like almost mm. smaller than you know she physically is. It gives this real great sense of isolation. Uh, very similar to Rear Window uh, and Rosemary's Baby. I think for mm. like in the, in terms of the the hallways and doors and what sort of just out of sight all the time and you don't know if she's paranoid or on yeah. something which yeah, is you're a not, great you're not sure which is an interesting aspect of it as well well here is Julia played by Amelia Monroe telling Francis played by Carl Grusman about this idea that she believes she's been stalked by an unseen watcher in the adjacent building hey what what's up nothing There's this guy that lives across the street, and he's always looking over here. Looking in over here how? Every time I look over there, he's just standing in his window, and it's like he's staring right at me. Which window is it? Right there. I can't see anything. Because it's day. He only looks in at night? I can only see him at night. Doesn't mean that he's not... You know what? Forget it. No, come on. Mm. If you're feeling uncomfortable about something, you should talk about it. Really? I'm fine. So you're Diane Keaton? Mm Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I said. That's uh, Maika Monroe, played by, uh, sorry, Julia, played by Maika Monroe, and Francis, the husband, played by Carl Grusman in the scene from from Watcher. She has to carry a lot of the story, yeah. really, doesn't she? Does she does she shoulder that burden well, Tara? She's a, she's a really she's a really really great actor, and I don't if you remember, like she had a real moment about I think about six seven years ago when she when she was in It Follows and things, mm. and and I always thought they'd managed to find more to do with her, but she has ended up a lot in the kind of horror, um um thriller I, I'm not going to say ghetto but like mm. she, she has ended up in a lot of a lot of those genre films where I kind of you know imagine that she was going to sort of land there's something there's a bit more plum. to this is there yeah there, no there's definitely something there's definitely something a bit more to this or at least there is in the setup I think it sort of runs out of road a little bit towards the end. It's it you know it, it has certain things in motion. It's like we we're aware that there's a serial killer stalking the yeah. city, and, and we you know we're, we're aware obviously of the watcher of the title, um and then and then it doesn't really you sort of you're expecting some kind of flip or you're expecting something unexpected to happen and that doesn't, doesn't really quite, come yeah, yeah. Um, but but certainly that's nothing to do with um, Mika Monroe's performance yeah. which is terrific and um, Carl Guzman who was in Casper Noya's Love all those years ago he, he's also yeah. great as the husband You've also talked uh, Justin about the cinematographer here Benjamin Carl Nielsen mm-hmm. and, and the director Chloe Okuno you've singled both of them out for what's special a, mention a, What's the first film which is you know first films usually don't have yeah. really really Rich cinematography, mm. that's a, in particular, as, as sort of one aspect of it, and just yeah, the, I think their awareness of, of these films, like you know, the conversation of these kind of paranoid films of the seventies and eighties, and uh, 
just I think it, it's it's just there in all the shots and where she is in the frame and you know as I said there was this this one hallway where where the watcher lives and it's just it's so creepy because all the doors are yeah. kind of recessed into alcoves and you just have this sense of like what's in that alcove what's in that alcove so they know their stuff and it's just little stuff the camera's always a little looking down on her mm. always a little bit below her like really really clever stars um, well it is very linear uh, as Tara said I was expecting it doesn't quite. Wow, yeah. me at the end. So I went to four. Though. Um, what are you saying overall, Tara? I'm uh, three and a half. Three and a half from you. Okay, let's move on then to the peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby, uh, Seamus Murphy documentary. I look at the uh, very d- many different lives of Pat Inglesby, mm. it has to be said, Tara. I mentioned the children's TV, yeah. which I think what most people will know from possibly the poems. But there's a lot in this film. Yeah, no, th- no, there's a lot going on. I mean, it's it's interesting because I st- like stopped using the phrase national treasure when I heard it used about a catch bar. Um, but, um, you know, it's just it's just one of, it's a phrase like the word iconic. It's like, no, yeah. no, that's that's just lost all. I mean, but no, if, if anybody deserves national treasure, it, it's surely Pat Inglesby. And it's. And it's such it's a really interesting story, um, and there's and there's a lot to it. You know, from the early childhood in Malahide, when he, which is kind of heartbreaking. You know, because mm. he has polio and he can hear he his father carries him down to the to, to the couch every day, and he can hear the ch- other children playing outside, and and he's he's educating himself like listening to the kind of BBC educational programs on the radio, and and that's that's very formative, um, and you know and you know then he sort of doesn't really as an adult fit in and he tries to work in an insurance office and in Dublin and that doesn't work out and he takes off to 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 England for a few years and he's kind of b- bouncing around there in this nomadic fashion um and he he find and he finds his way and his sort of RTE career is as entirely accidental it's it's just <laughs> yeah. it's 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 such a kind of a strange thing you couldn't you know you couldn't. no one could have could have made it up it's well he went into his interview didn't he he tells us in the thing he went into the interview with a hat on with two cabbages <laughs> hanging out of it which is of course what became part of the, the, the TV programme that he did Justin yeah no the Pat's hat yeah there's yeah. some really great archival stuff I have to say <laughs> but the, the story of the interview is hilarious and just like this little note on his uh, on his uh, interview sheet like basically saying hire this man you know, for all intents <laughs> purposes and then and he stumbles into it and, and kind of creates yeah, this genre almost yeah. from, you know from scratch this sort of Irish children's presenting yeah but well, let's have a listen to a clip which touches on something Tara mentioned which is, is this is idea that he had polio as a childhood and he really wanted to be a footballer that yeah. was kind of in the back of his mind so and it's Pat Inglesby himself speaking here but I always wanted football I wasn't able for it because of polio and I always wanted it so it became clear to me that I wasn't going to play in goals for Ireland, and that was all I ever wanted to do. And I practiced manically. I practiced and practiced until I developed an amazing ability to respond on my right side. And I reached the stage where the men would pick me on a Sunday for a match on the village green. Because what I was able to do was good. It wasn't a lot, but the bit I could do was good, you know. And I remember coming off the village green once after about three hours. And to be bruised from head to toe, it was dog rough. But I remember coming off the village green and the man who'd been watching the whole match said to me, do you know something, Pat, you're a very good goalie. And that meant more to me than any Nobel Prize ever would. 
<laughs> Pat Inglesby there. Uh, in the, from the documentary, the peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby. You'd wonder how could you go about telling this story because there are so many disparate elements to it. And he just, he never was, a, you know, he never took the direct route to anywhere or anything, Pat, uh, Justin. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because his, his partner mentions that one of the things she liked about his poems when she first read them is that they, they were just really clear and really concise and really um, uh, impacted her. And he kind of just talks about his life like mm. that. It's like he's been waiting to sit down and tell this story and he just hits on all these little moments and it's just an incredible unfolding of all these moments in London and what have you yeah, that lead up to the one we know and his life yeah, after he leaves And, and then we, we, we also get some of the poems just dotted in just as yeah. voiceover throughout the, the, the documentary itself, Tara. They're, they're very nicely written in and where they're positioned is always very good because they always relate to what, yeah. they always join together whatever he happens to be talking about you know because there are quite serious things in here there's like the, like he did have his struggles with mental illness until he found his way into gestalt therapy which mm. he credits for a, a, absolutely and saving him and he talks him. about the guilt he felt around religion as religion a child religion and, and, that, and that sort of and, the, and you do get that sense like it's a bit like his poems and his art and himself he's just he's he's kind of ahead of time and out of time and he like he's just um, and, and he's and he finally has kind of he finds his own way and he finds his own place mm. and I think that's I think that's a, a really kind of nice aspect of the documentary and it's also like hugely appealing I suppose to people of a certain age who also had those same kind of struggles with guilt and possibly mental illness Yeah, um, did, did it work overall for you Justin? Yeah, the only thing I'd like to have seen is it's a very traditional documentary you know there's uh a talking head, there's a few people sort of talking around Pat, t- telling his own life story, and then it cuts to various clips And but it was, I think it was when it really got to the poems, I'd really like them to have done something less formal and really kind of more magical with the visuals. Because that's precisely the man that you get, is this less formal, magical man. Yeah, yeah, so it would have been lovely if, if I've seen documentaries like uh, The Reason I Jump, where the cinematography really kind of synthesises with mm. the words to create a, a visual poem, and I just think that was missing from uh, from the the film. So stars from you, Justin. Oh, four. It's a great character. It's a really great story. Just would like the director to have pushed it. All right. And from you, Tara? Uh, four. It's worth it just to hear him read out the uh, a vagina in the Vatican <laughs> alone. <laughs> yeah, it's a great poem. And also the one about the, 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 the unicorn that has the horse and the gynecologist has to break it to the dad. I just, it, it just, it's a wonderful, wonderful stuff. The peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby, four stars. Didn't tell either of you beforehand. Didn't know myself. Our sound operator tonight, Dave, Gibson is Pat Inglesby's nephew so there you go um, great to have him here with us as well so four stars for that and uh, five stars and, and three and a half and four he did quite well in our films yeah, this evening doing good. Yeah. Tara Brady and Justin McGregor on living the peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby and Watcher That venerable institution based in Beggars Bush in Dublin, the National Print Museum, is celebrating its 25th anniversary. What better way to celebrate than to commission a series of short stories in print? And that is its name, Short Stories in Print, a limited collection of unpublished work by some of Ireland's leading writers, including Sebastian Barry, Christine Doyer, Hickey, Anne Enright, Ruddy Doyle, Claire Keegan and Colm Tobin. The writers were tasked by master printer Sean Sills to write a story of between 250 and 300 words. To tell us about the Collection. We're joined by one of the writers, Christine Dwyer Hickey, and master printer at the National Print Museum, Sean Sills. So, what particular side of you, Sean, decided that 250 to 300 words was a good length for a story? Has it something to do with printing? Uh, yes and no. 
basically aesthetics, I would think, because when I originally decided that a print project would be a wonderful way to celebrate the 25th birthday, I wanted to do something unique and special, something I had never done before. And having worked almost 40 years of print education, I had been commissioned to do lots of different projects. Mm. And then one day I had a little inspirational thought and I thought, a portfolio of broadsheets by six contemporary Irish writers would be something unique and special. I had never done it, and I'd never seen it done before. I think I started out with about 600 words, but six, the sheet size was slightly bigger than A3, <laughs> and 600 words was just too, too crammed, much. Yeah. too much. And I wanted nice, big, deluxe margins and a simple, not too long a text that would discourage people from reading it. So I decided on 250 to 300. That amount balanced beautifully. And and, and that's why I thought it might be have to do as much with printing as as anything else. And I suppose when you you heard that, Christine Dwyer-Hickey, you think, oh yes, six of them on a broadsheet. That's super. And they'll all have their own little something. They'll sit perfectly balanced. Now you have to write a story between 250 and 300 words. I know. Yeah, I spend more time cutting than I do writing, (laughs) to be honest, Sean. But anyway, I got there. We got it. We managed to do it. And it does look great. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of work Mm. and a gorgeous cover. And it really, really looks lovely paper and everything. It's lovely. But the task of writing to, you know, to that kind of work. Oh, I know. God, don't talk to me. I mean, as I said, I'm just (laughs) cut, cut, cut. And then you'd say, oh, yeah, that's great. I got rid of loads. And you look and you think, oh, no, I'm still 200. you know, too many yeah. because I could have written a lot more about this particular subject mm. and um, but the word count stopped me and also the idea of credibility because, you know, I had to tone it down because sometimes things are so strange in life that nobody believes them and I didn't believe it myself when I saw with my own eyes the, th- the thing I wrote about. But anyway. Well, let us, yeah. uh, let us uh, well, wait no further to find out what, right. what it was that was so strange because the great delightful thing about 250, 300 words is that we can read it on a programme like this as well <laughs> in total. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. There's a house I go to whenever I'm in London. I don't know who owns it and I've never been inside. It's on an ordinary terrace in Clerkenwell. Strange objects hang outside it. Milk cartons and tins from long ago larders. Old school ties are wrapped around the railings, while spiked along the top are dolls' clothes and a single baby sock. A naked Barbie doll shinnies up a length of twine. A teddy bear hangs by the neck. Stuck to the windows are Polaroid photos of old family gatherings. There's something magical about this house, and yet it is full of menace. One day I arrived to find the door open. The hall looked like a chaotic incident room in a police station. From the ceiling, lengths of rope studded with pieces of mirror dangled. As I watched, a breeze rose and entered the house, lifting one of the mirrored ropes. And then one by one, all the ropes began to sway until the whole house seemed to bounce in a mosaic of white light. I realised then why I kept coming back. This house is a novelist's mind, holding on to scraps for years, hanging them up so they are always in sight, even if never put to use. In the half-light between sleep and consciousness, I see this house. When overwhelmed by ideas, I see the scraps and trinkets that clog up the space and suck the air from the rooms. And I wait for the door to open. 
wonderful. It really does. I didn't ask you the title of the story. There's no title. No title. I decided not to have a title. I hadn't got room for a shot. <laughs> that was but apart from anything, I decided not to have a title. We'll be a word count on that. <laughs> It really is such a tease, that story, Sean, isn't it? Because all you want to know is you want to know more about that house now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, you, you, what was it your... It draws you in. Yeah. It just draws you in. Yeah. And all the pieces are stunning pieces. Um, both Roddy Doyle and Claire Keegan wrote about their fathers. And um, Sebastian Barry wrote about his grandfather. Mm. Uh, while... Um, um, Anne Enright, Anne Enright talked about walking along Docky Quarry during mm. the pandemic and the beautiful scent of the spring flowers. So they are, they're all very, very unique pieces. And was Roddy Doyle's father, did he work as a... As he a did. Prince? Yes, yeah. I knew Roddy, uh, Rory very, very well. Mm. And Rory worked in print education as well. And his piece is about Roddy bringing his father in his 90s to visit the museum and all the memories flooding back. Yeah, and again, yeah, you, even just as you, as you pitch it there, you think, mm. God, I want, to, I want to read more about that as well. Yeah, and and you, you, came, you noticed that as well, Christine, this idea that, yeah. of making and, and the use of hands. Well, and that's what intrigued me about mm. this whole project, because now I think as we become more and more dependent on technology in our mm. lives and we make less and less things in this country, the idea of <clears throat> craftsmanship of, you know, somebody finding a craft and it being nurtured and honed and worked on and worked on until like Sean, you're a master of this, the, the craft. I think that's a wonderful thing. And th- that was one of the reasons I think I've, I felt very much attracted to, to, to this uh, project. Yeah, and I guess, I suppose every time you sit at the desk, you're involved in the craft of writing as well as in the art of writing. But did this make you think about the craft of Actually what you're doing? seeing it, yeah, because, mm. you know, it's a different thing. I think writers, it's probably one of the, the few crafts, if you like, or arts or whatever you want to call it, where you don't get to touch, you don't get to touch your material. Mm. You know, I mean, the words could be anything, whereas a painter can touch and a musician feels the, 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 the music music and a printer feels you feel and you, when you see all that old machinery and you imagine the people from generations and generations working and working and I think to get back to Roddy Doyle's piece there's a, two very short sad lines about this is the day he would start work and then in a, in, in, in a, a, a trade I don't know if he calls it a trade but in a trade that he would outlive because the trade disappeared mm. and yet he would always be in his heart yeah. a printer and the craft is the craft that was invented by Gutenberg over 500 yeah. years ago letterpress printing or relief printing and this is how printing was done right up until the 1980s and it was the depression of the 1980s when companies had to modernise to survive that the craft died so it's only now used for that kind of artistic craft mm. approach of producing something really special because and I, it's so costly yeah and I guess that's part of the function of the museum itself is it to, oh, absolutely. to, to maintain that craft what, what what kind of works are you are you involved in in the museum itself Sean well I'm just uh, a volunteer in the museum. Uh, I worked in ed- print education for many, many years. But the museum is about keeping the craft of <coughs> printing alive, particularly letterpress printing. So unu- what's unusual about a museum is that it's a working museum. So you can go in and see the presses working and the compositor set and type and the linotype operator on special days to experience and understand how printing was done for centuries. 
So when you're talking about that, that you can go in and see this being being done, I presume what you have had to do then is you as a volunteer and others who come in to learn the craft from you. Is there a kind of an apprenticeship that's not dissimilar to maybe what you went through as a young man? Well, we do have an educational programme at the Mm. museum, but it's not specifically related to the craft or any of the crafts involved with printing. It is more to train people to be museum guides. So all our volunteers are disappoint you know they're getting old now and this practice is not done however there are a lot uh, quite a few graphic designers out there who like to use the medium and have their own print facilities for reproducing crafted printed work yeah because i'm interested in i mean have you gone anywhere near that i suppose the more technological side of things with computers and printing that is done in that nature or have you have you preferred to stay with the traditional methods that you well, learned that's an interesting question because for over 30 years I ran, I ran what was known as Distillers Press and NCAD and that was really a department or studio where the students escaped to where they could have this tactile mm. experience of handling type and inking the type themselves and be, being creative with the type rather than working on a screen you know, which is how it's all done today. I'm thinking too, uh, Christine, in, in your t- terms, I don't know at, at what point you've gone into pitch a novel or, you know, talking to an editor or a publishing house about the ideas for a novel before you get stuck into it. I guess that 250 words or whatever the precise count on the page in front of you, it is the perfect elevator pitch for a novel. Is this where that's going ahead, do you no, think? No, but I, I, I tell you, I did use some of this experience because the house does exist, but it's spookier than I've actually written it. You know, like one of the teddies has a knife in its eye and this, and then I met the owner and I met the owner who's who lives there with the spirits, as he told me, you know, and uh, it was a very strange experience. And, you know, um, I said, I'm going to I'm going to have to use him. So I put Mm. him into the novel I'm working on now. I hope I can keep him. He may not work within it, but it's a it's a London novel. So um, not far from finished yet, I'm afraid, but he's in it. He's in it anyway. You know, he's just the sky that and it's a very respectable road, you know, probably started off as landladies was run by iron-fisted landladies that used to sort of provide a bed but not a home as the saying went and then it became gentrified and they started to live in single houses and they're all very respectable except this house the way it sticks out it's something else yeah. that, 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 that is where <laughs> yeah. we want to hear more about that for sure yeah. what about the collector is it on display then in the museum at the moment Sean or how, how can people we see it we have a copy that's available for viewing at the museum uh, we we printed a hundred in the edition. Uh, they're all signed by the six writers, and uh, it's available at eight hundred and seventy-five euro. So, if anyone's interested, they can visit the museum or contact the museum. And there's a uh, as part of the celebration for the twenty-fifth anniversary. There's an additional event now has been added on December the sixteenth. Yes, we are lucky that Claire Keegan is coming to do uh, an int- is going to read her piece on the sixteenth and read some of her novel. And she'll be interviewed by Niall McMonagall as well on the evening. And then we're having a mince pie and mull wine reception afterwards. Sure That's the 16th that. to December. It's a beautiful At space though, Sean. You know, it's mm. a really, it's like, it's in an old church and the light in the place and all the machinery. It's just such a beautiful space to go to anyway. 
And you mentioned, I think you specifically mentioned Claire's piece you were particularly taken I was very taken with because it has this startling end to it that it's it's very sad Mm. but it's a very, very strong piece and I couldn't get it out of my head and you know probably all of them I don't pick one out in particular. I also love Sebastian Barry's one and he brought in an etching plate is that what it's called with his grandfather's face on it and it's kind of like the Shroud of Turin but it's on on, um, on (laughs) metal instead of on on cloth (laughs) and he talked about his grandfather who was an artist and trained in goldsmiths in London on a scholarship and about his workroom and they described beautiful description of the tools he used and how Sebastian himself now keeps the plates in his own workspace so you know, it's, it's yeah, about work it's, it's too. Yeah, a lot yeah. going on there. Well, listen, mm. it sounds like a very interesting project and looking forward to get it down and get a chance to see one of the copies that's there, Sean. I, I hope to do that in the next while. That's uh, uh, author Christine Dwyer-Hickey and master printer at the National Print Museum, Sean Sills, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the museum. The National Print Museum commissioned these short stories in print, a limited edition collection of unpublished work by some of Ireland's leading writers. You can find out full information of how to get there, where to see them, and indeed, as Sean told us, if you want to get one for yourself, at nationalprintmuseum.ie Originally from County Fermanagh, singer and songwriter Clara Tracy has just released her debut album, hugely influenced both lyrically and musically by some of the great erotic heroes and heroines of French chanson and literature from Serge Gainsbourg to Jane Birkin to Anais Nin and Colette. The musical journey starts curiously. This one particular started curiously when Clara studied law and French in Belfast before relocating to Paris to take a job in a law firm. There, uh, there, as much to relieve boredom as anything else, she began writing songs and lyrics having soaked up the Parisian life and culture. Black Forest is the culmination of that cultural and musical journey. Released on October the 21st, Clara Tracy is with me in studio this evening. Speak to her in a moment, but uh, let's have a typical Parisian flavour too to start us off. This is a track called Soap Girls. There we go, Soap Girls, and that's from Blackwater, the debut album from Clara Tracy, who is with me in studio this evening. And I was asking as we were listening to that, Clara, was there a particular heroine that had been in your mind at the writing of that song? A very theatrical type of song, it has to be said. I It, it was, in fact, Marilyn Monroe. I was uh, doing a version of My Heart Belongs to Daddy, and I, I wanted to do a sort of a gorilla's drumbeat uh, with it. Um, with a musician for a, a piano bar gig at the time, and I, I veered into that bass line, sort of it has a, a almost an Ethiopic kind of Casbah mm. uh, vibe to it, and uh, then I, I actually wrote the melody over it. Uh, in the car on the way up from Dublin to Enniskillen one day. I just <laughs> um, that's how it uh, came mm. about, and uh, was inspired really by 
uh, an old black and white photograph that uh, I found that my my friend Noemi uh, had taken when I lived in, in Paris of us just on a casual afternoon taking a bath and I, it sort of was spurred on by that nostalgia I suppose as much mm. as any great theatrical figure. And, and the other aspect of it is, and this is across some of the other songs as well, the mixture of French and English. To what extent do you do something different with the French lyrics or is it, is it as much a musical thing as it is a lyrical thing? I find French, it, it gives you another colour on your voice and a different texture and of course, Sean, you could say things mm. uh, in French in a song that you mightn't dare to say in English. So I, I enjoy play, <laughs> playing with the language uh, in in that way. So you, you allowed yourself to possibly wear a French mask, as it were, exactly. to say things that you wouldn't say in English. Oh, it's that. Didn't you even answer me? <laughs> you answer me in French then. So the, the move from the legal career and heading off to Paris to work in that particular uh, side of things, has that continued or has music now, is music now the, the way forward? Uh, the music very much took over uh, after I left uh, the law firm and started working in a in a in a Parisian jazz club. Uh, I I really I I didn't know that I could write songs when mm. I was in the law firm. I just it it started. I had a little red notebook and I that's when I started writing. Kind of it started as just a diary that you know became sort of poetic and into lyrics and. Uh, I think once you discover that you you can get this euphoria from writing a song, it's a very addictive feeling. And I, yeah, I got hooked and I've I've been writing songs since 2010. Um, I do have uh, uh, another hat that I wear. It's not a legal hat, but it's actually a, a cheese uh, selling uh, hat uh, I, I, for I beret for Cashel Blue. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, did, I was going to say, was it, is it a French cheese that you're selling? But no, <laughs> no, it's it's a, it's a Irish farmhouse cheese. Yeah, right. And um, yeah, I've I've made mm. uh, a lot. Mm. Yeah, I just had it. It really helps to have something like that in your life as a musician, um, a steady kind of job and then you've the freedom to write songs and focus on the music. What sort of a place is the Black Forest of the album's title? Um, How magic a space is that or are there other things going on in the Black Forest? Um, For me, the um, Black Forest is, it's a multi-layered title. It's a multi-layered world. There's there's lots of things going on. There is sort of a, a slight magic realism in there in that um, there's some songs that uh, in which that black forest gato transforms into a forest. It, it goes on its, uh, on, a, on its own sort of surreal journey. There's um, stained glass windows that come to life. Um, there's the you know, these two mm. pair of girls that are eternally in a in a bath in Paris kind of brought, brought to life, you know, from a photograph. So um, there is, uh, there's definitely a child-eyed wonder um, in, the, in the magic of, of a child's eyes, I think that I've tried to yeah, bring so into the, it. Yeah, there's, so there's that aspect for sure in some of the songs, but there's also a racy side to some of the songs. <laughs> and, uh, to what extent do you totally avoid that in your English lyrics? And say, no, my French lyrics will allow me to express that racier side. <laughs> I thought you were <laughs> going to say to what extent do you totally avoid that in your interviews, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw you going red, so you can't, you can't avoid it now. Um, I mean, I don't I don't shy away from it. I, I just think at the end of the day, you... Um, uh, you you write what you see, and I, I was living in Pigalle. I lived in Montmartre. I um, 
I was kind of uh, surrounded by um, a, a sort of uh, libertarian uh, bohemian circle of friends. I don't know what now my family are going to make of this, but you know, I just say, uh, I it's it's not like I I don't like deliberately lean into it. It's mm. just you, it's not a conscious thing. You just sort of whatever comes out, and some of it might be deemed risque, as they said in one of the Fermanagh newspapers. <laughs> I was going to say, is it a very different kind of uh, environment then from either end of Skillen or Dublin that you were living in in Paris? Clearly it was. Uh, I mean, Dublin, you know, has it, you know, had its motto to say. <laughs> but uh, no, I had a, I, I think uh, it was very different uh, moving from Belfast um, over to Paris in 2009. Let's just say it mm. was. It was a culture shock, uh, but in the best way possible. You mentioned stained glass windows, which are part of Black Forest, and Harry Clark in particular gets a mention. Was there a specific Harry Clark stained glass window? Where, where how did this come about? Uh, that came about uh, because I was actually living around the corner from the Hugh Lane at the time when I when I wrote it um, uh, in Fibsborough, and I used to. I just not dropped into it uh, on my way home. I I've, it was the Eve of Saint Agnes that. That is, you know, that mm. particular masterpiece that uh, caught my imagination in a big way, and I, yeah, in the song, it's it portrays a romance uh, um, as beautifully as and luxuriously and as fantastically, really, as as that, um, that window. window. Yeah, let's have a listen to the song, Harry mm. Clark. That is a taste of Harry Clark, one of the tracks on uh, Clara Tracy's new album, Black Forest. And Clara uh, will be, where? Yes, performing in her hometown of Enniskillen this Saturday at Hamley and Hamley. She plays Spilt Milk in Sligo, Saturday, November the 19th. American Bar in Belfast on the 24th. Prim's Bookshop in Kiltail on December the 1st and Plugged in Cork on December the 8th. So you're going to be around the country quite a bit and quite a lot to the live show you were telling me as we were listening there, uh, <laughs> as well as the singing, Clara, yeah? There's, there may or may not be a, a spinning cake. There may or may not be a spinning cake at, at one or all of those venues. That's Clara Tracy speaking to me there.